This past Monday, Laura asked if I could help her out uh, with an errand for the middle school. She was, she's heading up the Tecumseh Middle School PTO. They call it something different, but it's the same thing. And they're overseeing, she's overseeing, uh, an end-of-the-year eighth-grade trip to Kings Island. And so she needed to go and collect forms and money of the students that were going. Uh, and she asked if I could do that when I dropped off Mike and McKenna in the morning. And I said, sure, no problem. So I showed up. And uh, crammed into this office are like 25 or more students. And I was a little shocked because I was assuming I was just picking up a stack of things. I didn't realize that there was going to be a, a line of students there. And uh, I should have known. I should have recognized that. Laura had been talking about it. She had already told me the inner workings of how they had had to do things. So I should have known. But one, it was the morning. I am not the quickest in the morning. Uh, so it was... I was very slowly, too slowly, figuring out what was going on as I was there. And so I began to collect the forms and the money, and, and then the secretary stopped me, and she asked, do you have the list of the students who can't go? Because you don't want to collect the money from that. And I, I, I did what I normally do in the morning. I just kind of stared at her. Just buffering, you know, the information that was coming at me, and then slowly responded. No, I didn't have that form. And, uh, you know, she gave it to me, and... I started checking names off at that point, and uh, then a student comes up, and he asked for change, or she asked for change, and I, once again, just stared at this student, because I was realizing I have not been counting any of the money that they've been giving me, and now this person's asked for change. Who knows if they've been giving me the right amount, so I pull out some cash from somebody else who had given uh, and marked it on the paper, and, and then just continued. And then a student asked me if I was going to be there, if anybody was going to be there uh, any other days. And of course, I did the same thing. I just stared at the student for a while, and then I looked at the secretary and the principal who was now there, thankfully. And uh, I just stared until they decided to answer the question. And, uh, and then a student comes up and just hands me cash, and she says, you know, I, I didn't have the form. Um, I left it at home, and... More blank stares from me, more, more trying to figure out what to say to the student. Thankfully, the, the secretary at this point, she realized that she was dealing with Mr. Bean this morning, if you're familiar with that, that sketch. And so she just kind of stepped into the situation, answered the question, and, and dealt with it. So anybody watching me that on Monday morning of this week would have thought, that, that guy does not know what he's doing. And that's the same way I felt when I told some pastors that I was going to be starting the Book of Romans. As they looked at me and they would say, whoa, I'm not ready for that. And that made me just stare at them blankly and think like, am I doing the right thing? Like maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe this is something I should be waiting on. Uh, and there is good reason to pause with Romans because of how significant it has been for people in history. See, Romans, it figured in both Augustine and Martin Luther's conversions. And, and afterwards, Martin Luther, he he said that Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. And it was actually while hearing Luther's commentary on Romans read that John Wesley describes as the time that he was converted. While he's listening to just the commentary on Romans, Read, he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And you know, numerous church leaders throughout history have said Romans is so important 
The 4th century preacher John Chrysostom, he said, Romans is unquestionably the fullest, deepest compendium of all sacred foundational truths. The great English reformer William Tyndale, he was also the first to translate the Bible into English from the Hebrew and Greek. He said of Romans, this epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament and most pure, glad tidings that we call gospel and also is a light and a way into the whole scripture. John Calvin, he praised the letter to the Romans this way. He said, the excellency of this epistle can never be sufficiently appreciated. Once we know the contents of this letter well, the doors are open to the greatest treasures of the scriptures. The Scottish reformer John Knox, he said that Romans is unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. John Stott, not the pastor of this church, but the English pastor from years past. He said that Romans is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. And James Montgomery Boyce called it the most influential document ever penned. And many of us have heard of and experienced people using in their evangelism the Romans road. So Romans has been used to impact, in some cases, someone's conversion or to explain to somebody their conversion. So you can start to see why some of these pastors looked at me thinking, are you, are you sure you're ready for this? But Here's the thing. If Romans has, has had such a great impact on believers and the church, why wouldn't we want to look at this letter? And why, why wouldn't a pastor want to grow in their study of this letter? Now, it's, it may be true that, that not all of us are ready to hear what Paul says in Romans. But ready or not, here we come. So, we, as we open to the book of Romans, you can turn there, be at the very beginning of it. As we open to this book, many of you are aware, and even as you heard me read it this morning, that this is a letter written to the Roman believers in the first century. And you might ask, why are we reading and listening to a letter that was written to somebody else? Well, it just so happens that in these first seven verses, Paul is going to explain why we need to listen to this letter. There is something more than just the historical impact that it's had that explains why we need to pay attention to Romans. We, in our day, in our church. Now, ancient letters, they had a form to them, just like our letters have a form to them. You know, our letters begin with the recipient. We say, dear, or, yeah, dear John, for example. John's my brother's name, so I'll just go with that. And then you write what you want to say, and then you conclude by mentioning you, the writer. Sincerely, Kurt. Well, ancient letters had a, a pattern as well. It was different, though. The person writing the letter, they began with their name, and then they followed by writing the name of the person they were writing to, and then they gave a short greetings. So you have a, an example of this in Acts twenty three twenty six. It's just a, a letter that's found in, in the New Testament. It mentions this. It says, Claudius, Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. That's it. That's, that's a typical opening in the first century. That's all that they would have. Paul's opening in this letter is seven verses long. So he's doing a little bit more with his opening. He didn't just say, Paul, to the believers in Rome, greetings. He spent seven verses. Now, 
Paul's letters generally have longer greetings than any ancient document, but Romans is actually his longest, his longest opening. And the reason is Paul, Paul's writing to people, believers, the majority of whom he'd never met before. And so, as we're going to see, one of the reasons he writes to them is, is he has a responsibility to the Gentiles. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. But he also wants to introduce himself to these believers because he wants them to support him on his way to Spain. That's his plan. Paul had a plan to go to Spain at this point in his ministry. He planned to get to Rome, and he wanted these believers here to help him get on his way to Spain. That was his plan. God had a different plan for him. But... He wanted to teach them, given his responsibility, but also so that they'd be comfortable to support him on his way to Spain. And so Paul's writing to strangers in Romans, for the most part. And that seems to account for why Romans is a little bit different than the rest of the letters that he's written. So this is a unique situation. Most of the people that Paul would have written to, even if he hadn't met them, like in the case of the Colossians, they had already been made aware of Paul's teaching. But this is a case where, for the most part, they had not been made aware of his teaching. At at best, they had heard rumors of it, rumors he probably needed to correct. So what Paul's doing, he did know a few of the believers here, but what he's doing for the most part is introducing himself. And he is explaining in these first seven verses why these Roman believers should listen to him. He's explaining why they need to pay attention to his words. And that's what he's going to do for us. He's going to help us understand why we should listen to Romans. And he's going to give us four reasons for that. We should listen to Romans because of the authority of its author, the significance of its message, the breadth of its jurisdiction, and the benefit of its reception. So paying attention to Romans is not optional for believers. There are important reasons why we need to pay attention to Paul in this letter. So why should we listen to Romans? Well, one reason is because of the authority of its author. Listen to how Paul introduces himself in the first verse. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So he gives three descriptions of himself here. First of all, he says that he's a servant of Christ. To be a little bit truer to The wording in the original, he's saying he's a slave of Christ Jesus. And and I've repeatedly mentioned the differences between ancient slavery and American. This is not Paul describing a racist dehumanizing of a person. That's not what he's talking about here. Later on in this letter, in fact, he's going to mention slavery again. He's going to mention for all Christians that we have been transferred from slavery to sin to become slaves of righteousness and of God. And so this is, what he says of himself is also true of all believers. And it was, in reading different people, it was John Piper who was very helpful in pointing to the other places where Paul talks about the significance of being a slave of Christ. So in places like Romans 6 or 1 Corinthians 7.23 or Galatians 1.10, what slavery illustrates is the way that our freedom from sin's power was purchased by Christ's death. So we now belong to him. The price for our life was Christ's life. And Jesus paid that price so that we would that sin would no longer be our master. He would be our master. He would be our Lord. And that means that everything we do 
from now on is for him. And so Paul says this for himself as well. But for Paul, slavery to Christ, it takes on even greater significance because of the specific task Christ gave Paul. When Paul calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ, I think he's also referring back to these other slaves that God has had in the Bible. So in the Old Testament, you'll hear people referred to as a servant, or you could translate that, a slave of the Lord. Servant of the Lord. So you hear Moses described that way throughout the Old Testament. You have David in, in the Psalms in a couple places described as the servant of the Lord. The prophets in the Old Testament are described as the servant of the Lord. These servants, they represent the Lord. So what they say, it's not just good advice. They're telling us what the Lord says. And so Paul uses this description, but notice he he doesn't actually call himself a servant of the Lord. He could have said that. He could have used that designation for Jesus. But he, he specifically says he's a servant of Christ Jesus. And what Paul's doing, he's going to do this in a number of places in this letter, but he is actually putting Jesus on the same tier as God. He's putting Jesus in the slot where the Lord God would have been in the Old Testament. Secondly, he refers to himself as called to be an apostle. Now, Jesus, at times, he used this terminology of calling, and he would use it for this indiscriminate invitation to sinners. You know, so we have in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. But that's not how Paul uses this word. When Paul talks about the called, He's talking about a calling that's effective. So when Paul refers to the called, he's always talking about those who have responded to that call in faith. When Paul was called to faith in Jesus, he was also called to be Christ's apostle. You might remember that that story uh, of Paul being on the road to Damascus. And at this point in Acts 9, he's a Pharisee who, who believes Jesus is a false messiah. And he doesn't just believe that he's a false messiah. He believes that he's dangerous, that his followers are dangerous. And so he is willing to put a stop to them by any means necessary. And at this point, again, in the story, he he has gotten a letter. He's gotten permission from the high priest to go to Damascus and to arrest any of the Christians that he finds there in the synagogues. And that's what he's headed to do. When Jesus interrupts him, the risen Jesus appears to him, And from that point on, Paul is a slave of Christ. He is commissioned by Jesus to be his apostle, to be his spokesman. That's what Paul means here by apostle. It's a word that's transliterated from Greek. And and you can use that word in different ways in the New Testament, but what Paul's doing, he's putting himself on the same level as Peter and those 11 others who were called by Jesus and witnessed the resurrection. So Paul, Right now, Paul, on that, on that road to Damascus, he witnessed the resurrected Christ and he was commissioned in the same way that the 11 were to be a witness to that resurrection and to be, as Jesus puts it, his chosen instrument to tell this good news to others. Specifically, to tell the Gentiles this good news. So now we can tell people the good news about Jesus. Right? We can do that. We can share the gospel. Paul's doing that differently than us. As an apostle, he has authority to not just tell the good news, but to speak for Jesus. 
he, he describes his role in 2 Timothy 1.11 as a herald. Compares himself not only to an apostle, but to a herald. Um, McKenna and Jocelyn were in the school play, the, the musical this spring at Tecumseh. They did Cinderella. They were both in that play. And there's a scene very, at the very beginning um, where the townspeople are told that the prince is having a ball. It's like a big deal. It's a whole musical number. And what happens is this servant of the prince comes out and he does the classic thing that you see, you know, the old-time picturesque way of announcing good news. He gets up on a platform, he kind of scroll, he pulls out this scroll, and he, he shouts something like, hear ye, hear ye, and then he proclaims this message. Now, a herald had a specific job at that time. You know, they couldn't just do whatever they wanted. Uh, one, one dictionary describes heralds doing this, that they deliver their message as it is given to them. The essential point about the report which they give is that it does not originate with them. Behind it stands a higher power. The herald does not express their own views. He is the spokesman for his master. So Paul, if he was the slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, the king of Israel, and not just Israel, but the whole world. And he has this message now that he's conveying to others. And then he goes on to describe his role as being set apart for the gospel of God. Same ideas used in the Old Testament for setting apart the Levites for service to God. And, and the way that this word is, it's translated set apart, but it often, the way, the form of this word, it, it implies that God's the one who's done this. So, like the Levites before, God set Paul apart to serve him in this holy task. And specifically, he's been set apart, he says, for the gospel. He's going to go on to explain what he means by the gospel. We know that that word means good news. But in saying that it's the gospel of God, you know, we, we might expect him to say the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he says the gospel of God to say that the source of this gospel, this gospel, this good news came from God. And so if we pull all this together to say, what is Paul saying about himself? We can go back to that picture of the, this person in Cinderella. Paul is like that herald. He is a servant of the king. He has been sent with a message that he must give others. It's a message of the good news. And that his message comes from God. So, why does he tell us that? Because he's telling us again why we need to listen to him. Why, why do we listen to this person who is a stranger to us? He's not just somebody who he was impacted by Jesus and he just wants to pass on what Jesus taught to us. That's not what Paul says. He's saying that he speaks for God. So when we talk about inspiration, sometimes people want to present that as though that's just an idea that we came up with. That is not the case. The Bible presents itself this way. What Paul is saying is that he's inspired, that his word is from God. That's why we should listen to him. He says that he's Jesus' servant and apostle. The good news came from God himself who set him apart to share this. So this is not just human wisdom. Paul is conveying absolute truth. You know, in our day, people question whether you can say anything absolutely. Can you say anything that's true? Paul's saying that the creator told him what this is. He, he is speaking absolute truth. You can, you can disagree with him. You can say, no, I don't believe you, Paul. But that is what Paul's saying. 
That's why we should listen to what he says in Romans. The second reason we should listen to Romans is because of the significance of its message. Paul could summarize his message really as the gospel. It's good news. But he goes on in verses 2 through 4 to explain more of why we need to listen to this message. It's a message that he says God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So this good news isn't new news. God had promised it beforehand. The speaker and guarantor of this promise is God himself. And he, he spoke this promise through his prophets. So Paul's a spokesman for God. The prophets were God's spokesmen before Paul. And the, the specific prophets Paul's referring to are those that wrote the Old Testament. So he goes on to say that these are written through or in, rather, the Holy Scriptures. So again, when we talk about inspiration, it's not just something we invented. This is what Paul's saying. These Old Testament scriptures are inspired. That God spoke through these prophets to us, and we now revere what they have said as holy. Not, that's again, not our, our own idea. It's because these are God's words. It's his holy words. So this good news about a Messiah who came and died and rose again Paul says that's in accordance to the scriptures in 1 Corinthians, saying the same thing here. Jesus' life and death and resurrection were what the Old Testament promised. That's what Paul's talking about. That was the plan. It's not like, oh, things happened. Jesus showed up and things kind of went down messy and he ended up getting killed and then God raised him for the. That was the plan that God told us about in the Old Testament. Paul's going to flesh that out in the rest of Romans. He's going to speak about the Old Testament. He's going to refer to it as the law and the prophets in chapter 3. And he's going to say that the Old Testament bears witness to what he's talking about, the good news that he's talking about. And then throughout Romans, he's going to quote from the Old Testament. And what he's going to do is apply it to what's happened in Jesus. He's going to say, you know what you read about in the Old Testament? That's what's happening now in Jesus. So this news is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And what is the good news? He goes on to tell us in verse 3. He says that it's the gospel from God concerning his son. And the way that he says son here, he writes it so that anybody reading this in Greek would recognize, hey, this is the one-of-a-kind son. Now, where do you get that terminology of sonship? You know, we know God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit from the Bible. But a person reading this, a person in that day, they would also recognize from the Old Testament Two other sons of God. Israel is referred to as the son of God in places like Exodus 4.22. David's sons are referred to as the son of God in 2 Samuel 7.14. So the Old Testament, what it does is, one, God calls Israel and says that they're his son. And then, after Israel has demonstrated time and time again their failures, God then chooses David and his descendants and says, You're going to be my son. You're going to represent my son. The son of God representing the son of God. And so that's very clear that these kings, these Davidic kings, were representing the people when you get to the exile. So those kings were why God says the people are going to be exiled on occasion. You have 
cases where God says, I won't send you into exile, like with Josiah. But then you have Manasseh saying, because of what you have done, king, you son of God, representing this son of God, now the people are going to go into exile. And Josiah's sons do the same thing and their grandson. So Jesus is the one who represents his people. He is fulfilling this role of being the son of God, not just another son of God, but the son of God who fulfills that role. And then the rest of verse 3 explains that this son was descended from David according to the flesh. The Old Testament promised, again, that one from David's seed, that's the terminology here, one from his line would come as the Messiah. That's who Jesus is. The son who became a descendant of David according to the flesh. There's, There's a subtle implication here that that the son existed prior to becoming a descendant of David. In fact, the word translated was here, could be, and often is translated became. He mentions according to the flesh. That word flesh gets used different ways. So sometimes it's used in a fairly negative way to talk about our sinful state. But Paul's also using it here and in other places in a more neutral way. He's talking about the state of our existence right now in the present. This state is, it's determined by the fall. So it's a state of mortality. It's a state of frailty. That's the state that Jesus entered into. According to the flesh, it says. But just understand, by talking about Jesus and saying one aspect of Jesus, one thing you should know about him, just the according to the flesh side, that implies that there's another part of the story. It's not just according to the flesh. Nobody would say this of anybody else in the Bible. Moses, Abraham, David, anyone else, they don't have another side. There's, there's only the flesh, the fleshly existence. So this hints at Jesus' deity. Then what follows, it doesn't focus on that. Uh, what Paul goes on to contrast isn't Jesus' humanity and his, his divinity. What he contrasts is the way that Jesus entered this world and how he left it. And so he entered in this humble state, he took on flesh, but when he left, in the end, he was exalted. And that's what he goes on to talk about. So verse 4, a number of translations, including the ESV, they say Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. The reason why it gets translated that way is because people were under the impression, the translators thought that this was talking about Jesus' divinity, and they didn't think that you should translate it another way, uh, it, it would sound wrong. The word translated declared is not used that way at the time. It's used to talk about being assigned a role or to be appointed to a task or a role. And again, this is a form that's implying that God is doing this. So it would be problematic to say that God appointed Jesus to a divine status. That's problematic. That's, that's called, it's a heresy called adoptionism. And there are people that have tried to use this verse to say that because of the meaning of this, this verb. But that's not what it's talking about. I, again, was helped out. Douglas Moo pointed out the way that we should read this and understand this. In verse 4, it, it mentions his son. Or rather, it's describing the words his son from verse 3. And the his there is a reference to God. So, in putting it together and trying to simplify what we're reading here in 
Verse 4, we could say, to clarify, that the Son of God was appointed the Son of God. Now, if that's all it said, that's pretty redundant, right? But that's not all it says. First of all, it says that Jesus was descended from David. Therefore, he has the right to be called the Son of God. But he was appointed also the Son of God in power. We don't stop with just Son of God there. Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He's no longer just a descendant of David who has the right to be the Son of God. He's now been appointed to the throne in power. That's exactly how Paul introduced Jesus to the Athenians. In Acts 17, 31, speaking of God, he says he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Just as Paul says here in Romans. And you remember what Jesus said to the Jewish leaders. We just saw this in Matthew. He told them, hey, as a result of my passion, you can view me as the son of man who has gone to the ancient of days and is seated at the right hand of power. And then after his resurrection, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus entered this world in a, in a humble state, in its fallen state, in this mortal world. He descended from David according to the flesh, but now he's been appointed the king. He's been appointed the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. This present fallen state is characterized by the flesh, but the, whole, the, the prophets, they spoke of a day that would be characterized by the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit. And they talked about that new era being ushered in by the resurrection from the dead. And the way Paul writes this, uh, it's kind of unfortunate the ESV puts in the word his. That's not there in the original text. Paul's actually speaking very generally. He's referring to the resurrection in general. And what he's saying is that Jesus, where he says elsewhere, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's saying that the resurrection has already occurred once. That Jesus has, in fact, by his resurrection, inaugurated this eternal age. So that's the Jesus of Paul's gospel. He is the Christ, the Messiah, and he is Lord. He ends by saying he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So understand the significance of this good news. Jesus isn't just an important and an inspiring person from history, you know, that we should say, you know what, maybe I should pay attention to him because look at how, how much of an impact he's made. That's not what Paul's saying. Jesus has brought the eternal age into the present. Jesus isn't just a, an important person in history. He's the turning point of history. He has inaugurated this new age, even though it, it awaits the consummation when he returns. So the good news that Paul's talking about is about the king of kings who reigns now in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day he will reign over all the earth. That's who he's talking about. That's who he's announcing. That's the good news. That's who the good news is about. And it's the king, because he reigns now from heaven and will one, one day reign on earth, he's the one that we have to face one day. So we better listen to what Paul's saying here in this letter. 
Third reason that we should listen to Romans is because of the breadth of its jurisdiction. There's a, there's a slight shift in verses 5 and 6. It's been talking about the gospel and the son, but now it shifts in verse 5 to talk about we and you in verse 6. So who is the we a reference to? Uh, some people look at this and they say, well, maybe he's talking about the recipients too because he mentions grace, but he also mentions apostleship. And, and that phrase, grace and apostleship, should be taken together. And Paul in this letter is seemingly being very careful to just talk about himself. He's trying to demonstrate to these people, as he introduces himself to them, that he has a special role as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so we is... It's probably just a reference to Paul. It's a literary device that people would do when they wrote letters in the first century. He's using a plural word to talk about himself. And he says that he then has received, Paul received grace and apostleship. He received that on the road to Damascus. He had experienced God's grace, his undeserved kindness, not only in saving him, but in appointing him to be Christ's apostle. And he says that he granted this role to Paul with a goal of bringing about the obedience of faith among all the nations, or we could say among all the Gentiles. That's what he got us, that's what Acts says of his call. And Jesus appointed him to the nations or to the Gentiles. But understand, the goal was not simply faith. You see that? It wasn't just to be an apostle for faith. The goal is the obedience of faith. Paul's going to contrast in this letter works and faith. He doesn't want to be confusing at this point. So he refers to here obedience. The kind of faith that Paul is after is one that results in obedience. You know, if we believe in the Jesus that Paul's describing here, that's going to be the result. This is the Son of God in power. This is Christ our Lord. If we believe in that Jesus, we're going to submit to him. We're going to listen to what he has to say. So Paul doesn't just want to rescue people from hell. You understand, that's not simply his goal. His goal, he further he goes on to explain, is for the sake of Jesus' name. So he's doing this primarily First and foremost, for the glory of Jesus. Jesus comes first. He's a representative of Jesus. He's going around for his sake, even more than for the sake of sinners. Jesus is the most important person to Paul. So he's not just looking for people to pray to receive forgiveness and an escape from punishment. That is not what he's after, that's not what he's presenting. He wants more than that. He wants people who understand who Jesus is, the King of Kings, so that they'll believe in him, so that they'll believe in this one who, this son who entered in such a humble way, so that by his death and resurrection we would be saved, but so that we believe in the one who is Lord, who's enthroned in power, who rules over all those who believe in him. That's the kind of response that Paul's looking for. It's not just after an experience. He doesn't want to just tell about the good news so that somebody has an experience. He's not just telling them the gospel so that they'll, he'll make a convert. He's here to make disciples. A true disciple 
who believes in a way that's demonstrated by ongoing obedience. That was Paul's goal. And then Paul points out that his readers, the people reading this letter, they fit with the goal of his authoritative ministry. He says in verse 6, this goal includes you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul had been called to be an apostle, to be a slave of Christ. These believers had been called also to be a slave of Christ, to belong to him. And he says that they're called to be saints. And he'd been called to be an apostle, to be set apart for a holy mission. And he says that these believers have been set apart to be holy also to God, to serve him. Now, being a saint is not like what you've heard. You know, we kind of shy away from that. We even use it as an excuse when we do something wrong. Well, I'm not a saint, you know. Don't expect me to be a saint. The Bible doesn't refer to saints that, in that way. That what Paul's saying in talking about a saint is not talking about your behavior primarily. He's talking about your status. That you've been made holy because what Jesus has done. So, through Jesus, God has made believers holy so that we can be with him, so that we can serve him. And this God who was at work in Paul was also in work, at work in them in the same kinds of ways. There was differences to it, but it was the same God at work. And so they needed to listen to Paul. The same God that was active in them was active in, in Paul. He also says that these believers are loved by God. And we know God loves the world, but the love that Paul's referring to here is not that general love. It's a specific love experienced by all who believe, all who are called in this effective way. All who believe, they come to know this love that Paul's going to go on to say, you cannot be separated from. So the question this morning is, does this describe you? Have you responded to the good news about King Jesus like this, the king who's promised by God to come and rule the world. The one who's ushered in the eternal age, even though it's not fully here. But who first came humbly, who became like us, who entered this world that's characterized by flesh. The one who came and suffered for the sake of us. Have you responded to that, Jesus? Have you responded to the king who not only has died, but has risen? Have you responded to the king who is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty? Have you responded not just with faith? Have you not just prayed to receive forgiveness, to get out of hell, but have you responded with the obedience of faith? With a faith that demonstrates itself in obedience? Are you responding that way? Do you believe that you're not your own? Do you believe that you belong to Christ Jesus? Do you believe that you're loved by God? Do you believe that you are called to be a saint? Again, it's not about your behavior, but that you've been set apart to serve God. Is that the way that you've responded? You really need to listen to Paul. We all need to listen to Paul. This is how we should respond. Believe what Paul says here. 
Believe in the Jesus that Paul describes here. And then join us as we pursue this Jesus through his apostles. Paul gives one final reason why we should listen to Romans in this passage, and we should listen to it because of the benefit of its reception. And Paul gives this final part to his opening. He tells the readers, grace to you and peace. Greek letters would begin with the word greetings, which was very similar to the word grace in Greek. And so Paul replaced greetings with grace. And then in Jewish letters, they would begin, those that were written in Greek were beginning with this same word that is translated peace here. In Hebrew, it's shalom. And this is Paul's prayer for his readers. This is what he wants for those who read this letter. He wants them to experience God's grace in Christ. This, this undeserved kindness that we experience only through Jesus. And those who experience that grace, the result is peace. It's peace with God. That's the way he's going to go on to say in Romans 5.1. After stressing the fact that God, God saves us, God justifies us on the basis of his grace through faith, he goes on to say in Romans 5.1, therefore we have peace with God. So we've been reconciled to God on the basis of this grace. That's what Romans is all about. That's the truth for those who receive Paul's message. Those who listen to Paul, they embrace this good news and they benefit from the ongoing experience of grace and peace. And that's what he wants for us. Notice though the way that he says this. He doesn't just say that this grace and peace is from God our Father, but he also equally says that it's from the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of people who would try to tell you, well, you know what? The early Christians, they didn't think of Jesus this way. They, they really want us to think that what happened was, well, initially you had people that just followed this human teacher, and then later on, much later on, you know, they gave into this superstitious veneration of Jesus as divine. That happened later. And, and they're supposedly approaching it from a scientific perspective. The problem is they have absolutely no scientific data to back up their belief. There's not a shred of evidence that there was any earlier forms of these letters that didn't have this. Truth is, here, here's, here is the evidence, the actual scientific evidence. This letter was written less than 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion which is documented outside of the Bible, right? And the author claims to be a pious, monotheistic Jewish man. In other words, he's a Jewish man who believes that there's only one God and that that God will not give his glory to a man, not share his glory to, with a man. And somehow, this man, Paul, is treating Jesus, a man who was crucified less than 30 years before this, as though he is in the same position as God the Father. That's a drastic change for a Pharisee to make. And you can choose to ignore what Paul says, but that's his testimony. That's what he's bearing witness to. And I think we should listen to him. Now, if you've ever seen a Mr. Bean sketch before, I can't account for all of them, but watched a few of them. And, and you know, he comes across, he's a foolish man. Like, that's, 
I think, the best way to describe him. He's not a fool in the sense he's a complete moron. I mean, in, at times he, he demonstrates that he's very resourceful. The thing that makes him so foolish is the way that he's oblivious to the people around him. He does not care about them. He doesn't even think about them. So he can walk into an ER and take a ticket and realize that he is way down on the line, sit next to a poor woman who is bandaged up and, and she's unable to even move, and she's got her ticket out. And he will take her ticket and replace the one with him just so he can have a better place in line. But the thing that really makes him a fool in these little sketches is how he thinks he knows what's going to be an improvement for him, what's going to be a good situation for him. And every time he does it, it ends up working out worse for him. He's just a fool. I felt like Mr. Bean the other day at the school. It's not what I want for myself. It's not what I want for you. But when believers fail to pay attention to people like Paul, that's what we look like to Jesus. We look like Mr. Bean. I mean, understand, Jesus is giving us directions. He's telling us what we need to do. And there are people who say, I don't really need that. You know, I pretty much know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't need the Bible. I don't need Paul telling me what I'm supposed to do. He doesn't need to dictate my life. I pretty much already, I've been in Sunday school. I've been in church long enough. I don't need anybody telling me what I'm supposed to do. I already know. We already know, right? We already know what we're supposed to do. Wrong. We need to listen. Paul's told us why we need to listen. He's drawn attention to his authority, authority that he gets from God, the significance of his message about this universal king who's sitting enthroned on high, the breadth of his jurisdiction that includes all of us believers. And he's drawn attention to the benefits that he wants us to experience through reading this letter. So, we're nothing but bumbling fools if we choose to ignore this. So don't be Mr. Bean. Listen to Christ by listening to Paul. Join me in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that you did join us here in this, these circumstances that are, are characterized by the flesh, the mortal, weak flesh. But you came into this world and became a descendant of David to save us. And thank you for doing that and for also teaching us even after that what you'd accomplished. How all authority was given to you and how you were now going to go and ascend and, and be seated at the right hand of your Father in power. And we thank you for commissioning Paul to write this letter, to teach us the truth about this good news, the truth about ourselves, the truth about what we need. We pray that your spirit, the Holy Spirit, would, would enliven us, would grant us 
the kind of attitudes that really do want to listen to Paul. Really do want to listen to you through Paul. Pray that you would convict us by your spirit. When we try to go it alone, when we try to do things just thinking we know, we can figure it out, we don't need this instruction, that you would convict us, that you would recognize, you help us to see the foolishness of that kind of behavior. That you would help us as a church as we delve into this, this book, that we would be attentive to it, that we would be humble and submissive and willing to listen to what you have said to us through your apostle. And that you would give us the grace to get over the hang-ups that we have. You would give us the grace to not stick to ideas that we have been committed to, not because we got them from your word, but because we've essentially got them from the surrounding culture. That we would listen attentively to what you are actually saying through Paul so that we can grow, so we don't stay the same. So we understand the true circumstances that we can, like Paul, do everything for your sake, for the sake of your name. And I do pray for anyone here that thinks that they do have faith, but that doesn't have the obedience of faith. That you'd help them to see that, as James puts it, that faith is dead. It doesn't do anything. They would repent of their, really the stubbornness that they have in wanting to rule their lives and submit to you. Ask for your grace, your mercy, and that we would all continue to take that, that posture of submitting to you. Amen.